Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs and has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast to earn ASHA CEUs. Type the word KEYS for $20 off. This subscription gives you access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word KEYS. Visit speechtherapypd.com slash keys and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs, Keys for Treating Chronic Cough. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Before we get started, we have a few items to mention. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of Keys for SLPs and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com. Andrea Story receives an honorarium from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this episode. She is a member of SIGS 3 and 13 Voice and Swallowing Disorders. And now, here's a little bit about our guest today, Andrea Story, CCC SLP. Andrea graduated cum laude with a Bachelor of Science in Communication Disorders in 1991 and a Master's in Clinical Science in Speech-Language Pathology in 1993 from the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, Canada. Andrea completed her clinical fellowship at the University Hospital in London, Ontario, and stayed on in a full-time position until 1998. Due to her husband's job transfer, she then moved to the U.S. She joined the phenomenal team in Chapel Hill at the University of North Carolina, where she was able to develop her interest and expertise in the areas of voice, swallowing, and upper airway disorders. Andrea moved to Anderson, South Carolina in 2001 and eventually started the Ann Med Voice Clinic. After 17 years of treating voice and swallowing outpatients, she was thrilled to have the opportunity to join the Greenville ENT team in 2018 in order to move back to a teaching hospital and to work with a fabulous multidisciplinary team. Andrea has taught the master's level voice disorders course at the University of South Carolina in Columbia and enjoys mentoring graduate students and new clinicians in the field of speech language pathology. When not at work, Andrea spends much of her time in church volunteer work, particularly Haiti missions, as well as with her family on her farm. Welcome, Andrea. Glad to be here. Well, we are so happy to have you here on Keys for SLPs to talk about this very important topic of treating chronic cough. This is, as I said, a very important topic, but one that is often not really covered in depth in graduate school due to just the sheer breadth of what we do need to cover in the curriculum. We do hope that will 
will change in the future a little bit. And in the meantime, we have you here tonight to talk about chronic cough and to help all of us who know a little bit about it and would like to be able to treat our clients well when they come through our doors. Because from what I understand, you're often seeing people um, who are asking for referrals from speech-language pathologists. Our patients are becoming more and more educated and are looking online for treatment opportunities and, and sources. And truly, if you're looking for chronic cough and you're searching for cough treatment strategies or the topic of sensory neuropathic cough, speech pathology treatment will come up each and every time. And so you will go to your physician and ask for a referral to a speech pathologist. And if you happen to get a speech pathologist who doesn't have much knowledge or experience in treating chronic cough, that poor person will feel, you know, very much out of their league as they're confronted with this patient seeking help. And you may not know where to turn. That's a horrible feeling. I think we've all been there with one diagnosis or another. Our field is ever-changing rapidly, and it's hard to keep up with everything. And this is an example of, of a kind of an up-and-coming area of treatment that I'm very passionate about. I think we can provide a lot of help to these folks. Well, I'm so excited to talk about it with you today. Before we get started, can you tell us about your journey as an SLP and how you came to specialize in chronic cough and breath disorders? So you mentioned my work at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, which is, of course, such a wonderful institution. And that is where I did all of my training in voice and learning how to scope patients and, and do all of the objective type of work uh, using video stroboscopy and, and laryngoscopy and those that type of thing. And, and so when I left that clinic, I was very well versed in how to, to run a voice clinic. And then I came to Anderson and South Carolina and was able to open the AnMed Voice Clinic there with the help of the physicians at AnMed, which is a, a community-based hospital in Anderson, South Carolina. What happened was it's very near Clemson University. And so that group of physicians that were the sports physicians for that team contacted me about a couple of their athletes that had vocal cord dysfunction or paradoxical vocal fold motion. And so that was kind of my entry into the breath disorders world. And I will admit I was not I did not feel confident in my skills. And so I sought further education by going to Boston and Chicago to a couple of advanced continuing education seminars. And in those seminars, they were bringing up the topic of cough as well as vocal cord dysfunction as part of the breath disorders continuum. And so I was became very intrigued by that, the how that continuum worked and what irritable larynx was all about and how cough and breath disorders and paradoxical vocal fold motion was all interrelated. And so it just captivated my interest. And I began to seek out more cough patients within our laryngology practice. So I went to my ENT doctors and said, hey, I think I should be treating more cough. And as a result of that, we worked, I had a great group of doctors that I worked with, and they were very willing to work with me. And we sort of identified patients that we had been missing that could have benefited from some behavioral treatment. And that was kind of the beginning of, of my journey and learning along with the physicians and the patients. So it was very much trial and error. And that was 15, 16, well, now more like 20 years ago. So it was a long time ago. Wow. So that's really fascinating that you even recognized patients in your own clinic who you had missed and the physician had missed, which is often what happens with chronic cough can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So chronic cough is so frustrating for patients. And really the journey that happens is a patient that is coughing 
every physician that they see, whether it be their family physician, let's start with their family physician. So their primary care physician is, they're going to start there. And most typically they're given an antibiotic, a round of steroids, and that may happen multiple times. Depending on how persistent the patient is, they may go back a few times for a few months, and then they typically would get a referral, or they may be busy and they go back once, and then they don't go back for four, five, six more months, and then they would get another round of antibiotics and another round of steroids. And the physician doesn't really recognize that the cough has not ended. The cough has continued for that entire four to six months, but the patient has been really too busy or didn't want to bother the doctor or whatever. They haven't heard that story of the continuing cough. And so at some point, most of those patients, however long it takes them, will get a referral to another specialist. And what specialist that is, is very dependent on the family practice, the primary care practitioner's practice pattern. So they may send to a pulmonologist always. When they think cough, they think we must go to a pulmonologist. And so if the patient goes to a pulmonologist, they will get a full breath disorders workup in terms of lung function. So pulmonary function workup, they may get some upper kind of a workup in terms of allergies. Some pulmonologists like to give antihistamines and that type of thing, a, a whirl. Some actually even think a little bit about reflux, depending on how thorough that pulmonologist is. But almost inevitably, they'll get put on some type of an inhaled steroid medication. And I'm not sure why, even if all indications, even if in the note, the doctor says, no, it doesn't appear that they have anything going on with their lungs, but let's put them on an inhaler anyway. And I have a real hard time with that. Even when I talk to my pulmonology colleagues, I say, but why did you try them on an inhaler? Well, I just thought we should try it. And then they make the patient promise that they're going to do it for three months. So often those inhalers can be an irritant to the upper airway if they're not needed. And yet the patient has promised that they're going to take it for an extended period of time. And I guess the reason behind that medically is if, it, if there is something going on with the lungs that is precipitating the cough, it takes that long for the medication to be useful. The problem is I almost feel like we should try something else that's easier first before we jump into a long-term three-month medication that may or may not work if there's no indication on a pulmonary function test. But I understand that a pulmonologist is going to do that because that is their practice pattern. If, on the other hand, you get sent to an allergist, you're going to have allergy testing and you may or not may not be told you have allergies or you don't have allergies. And so that's a pretty simple one, although it's expensive. And then you're sent on your way or given allergy medication or maybe given allergy shots, which may or may not help. It may not help your cough or it may help your cough. Sort of depends on what's going on, whether the allergies are truly the thing that's causing the cough. And then the third, your third choice would be ENT. And if it's an ENT doctor, they would, they're going to look and see, is it post-nasal drip, sinus, is there sinus disease? They may want to do sinus surgery. They're surgeons, so they kind of want to do surgery. They're looking from that perspective. So I guess what I'm trying to say is everybody has a bias. And it's unusual for somebody to take that big picture and look at what are all the interacting factors that could be causing this cough and how do we see how they're intersecting and then try to come up with a combined treatment that we could work on because cough is in multifactorial. So, and what ends up happening is if we only treat one of the factors, we're not going to end up solving the cough problem. Okay. Okay. 
So it sounds like by the time someone sees you, they have had a journey with from one to four specialists. Correct. Yes. They're very frustrated. Typically, they have a lot of doubt that they can be helped and they don't really want to see another medical professional. They do not want to hear the word medication. Often I wonder why they come to me if I'm honest. I really, I, they walk in the door and I sort of think, boy, you're, you must have a lot of faith in your doctor because you're coming to see a speech pathologist. And they say that, they often say, you are my last hope. You know, the doctor said you, you can work miracles, but you really are my last hope because I don't know, you know, what a speech pathologist can possibly do for me. My husband thinks I'm crazy to come and see you, but I don't know what else to do. The stories are very heartbreaking. It makes me sad that, that that's what sort of happened in our medical profession. I think a lot of the reason behind that is that doctors have such a short amount of time with each of their patients. So it's not that any of these medical professionals aren't wonderful at what they do. It's that they have six minutes to get this whole story out and prescribe the treatment and get on to the next patient. So it's mm -hmm. very difficult for them to sit and really tease out the whole story if they're going to stay on time and make their RVUs and get on to the next patient and, and do all of the things that they're expected to do within their practice, it's no one's fault. It's just that they, they have to follow the pattern and it's sort of churning out the, the next cough. You know, you have cough. Okay. Well, stamp. This is our treatment plan for you and the next person and the next person. And we, you can't deviate from the plan. And unfortunately, our, these type of cough patients very much deviate from the plan. There's something else going on with them that they don't, you can't just give them a steroid and an antibiotic, they're going to get better. Other things are going on. So we have to look at multifactorial causes of their cough. Well, the good news is that they do eventually get to you. What would you say on average, how long do you think that they have been dealing with the chronic cough? I'm sure there's a, it's varied, but can you think of on average, is it, you know, six months, a year? It's almost never under a year. And I would wow. say average is more like three to four years. My record, my record, 40 years. I just hit that a couple of years ago, a little old lady, 40 years. And she told me the reason she knew it had been so long is she had, had a son that just turned 50. And she can remember that her husband got her a cowbell to call him in from the backyard because when she tried to raise her voice, she would start coughing. And so he, and he was just an elementary schooler. Oh, Wow. Well, the good news is your work does help and your treatment does work. So let's dive into that a little bit. In order to understand how to treat chronic cough, we must first understand the common pathways that cough patients travel to get to an SLP. So we talked about that some, and it's, as you said, anywhere from a year to, to 40 years, hopefully it's, it's less, less and less as this becomes more commonly known that it can be treated. Yeah, we do have a role in that. And people always ask me, like, how, why is your practice so successful? And how do you, because I mean, my waiting, I have a long waiting list and longer than it should be. And, and I think the reason that it's successful is because I make contact with every one of my physicians that refer to me, even if it's sort of an incidental referral, like the patient asked or, and then I always share, I personally call them and share the information of, you know, so that it's sort of a collegial discussion. And I really feel like every single one of the doctors that I work with, and it's a lot of pulmonologists, and the ENTs are easy because they're right within my practice, but the pulmonologists in particular, I have a huge caseload of pulmonology patients, and they are so appreciative 
of what I do. They, they say they're, they're so grateful of the multidisciplinary approach. I have been surprised at how graciously they have accepted and been pleased by the work that I've done. And I find their work so valuable because they rule out all of the pulmonary reasons for cough. And I can't do that. I can rule out the ENT reasons because I can scope the patient, but I don't know what's going on in their lungs. So if they can rule those things out for me, when they get to my office, my job is a lot easier. So I really do find that extremely valuable. Don't be afraid to pick up the phone or, you know, we have so many ways to contact physicians now through your electronic health record, but reach out with that personal message and say, hey, I saw your patient today and this is what I thought. And, you know, I look forward to working with you again in the future or, you know, here's my personal cell phone number. Call me if you have any questions. That, that's really what I do with every physician that I, anyone that I can get a contact for, I mm-hmm. reach out. Well, that's a great way to advocate for yourself as well as for your patients. In order for us to understand chronic cough, we must first understand laryngeal pharyngeal reflux or LPR. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and how that is diagnosed? So much of the time, chronic cough sort of takes two pathways and LPR is the most common pathway and it can can be missed. I think a lot of the time when you go see an ENT doctor, that is, you have reflux. That's what they'll say. And sometimes they're right, but the patient doesn't think they're right because they don't have heartburn. When a patient hears the word reflux, they think, well, I don't have reflux. I don't have GERD. I don't have burning. I don't feel any anything coming up. You're wrong, which is the worst thing a patient can feel when they leave your treatment room is you didn't hear or understand what I told you. And you're going to give me a medication that isn't going to work. And and no, thank you. I don't want that. And again, six minutes, right? They don't have time to explain all of that to the patient. So LPR is laryngeal pharyngeal reflux. And it is the type of reflux that comes to the throat instead of to the esophagus behind the breastbone. It is still traveling the pathway of the esophagus, of course. That's the only way for it to come from the stomach to the throat but it's aerosolized particles. And truly what it is, is is an incompetent lower esophageal valve. And that can kind of open and close for a variety of reasons. Position medications have a lot to do with that. Blood pressure medication can make that valve open and, and weaker. Some other medications can kind of, a variety of different medications can change the way that the efficiency of that valve works. If you have a little bit of a belly, it can change the way that valve works. Wearing tight clothing. And so throughout the day, these little tiny particles that you don't feel will sort of spritz up into the throat and the body then creates a little bit of mucus around those particles because they're acidic or maybe they just have digestive enzymes. They're not truly acid. It can be non-acid reflux. And then you begin to have the symptoms of LPR, which are very classic, but not GERD symptoms. And they include things like hoarseness throat clearing, a feeling of lump in the throat, like there's something sitting there and you go to swallow that lump and it just doesn't go away. Excess mucus, which is why you clear your throat. Post-nasal drip, because the mucus, those little particles can go up into the back of the sinuses and then cause the sinuses to drain backwards. There can be some changes to the ears. You can have some pressure or some popping of the ears because your eustachian tubes are right there in the throat and it can cause a little bit of inflammation around the opening to the eustachian tube. Difficulty swallowing because again, the upper esophageal sphincter is the top of that swallowing tube. 
it can create a little bit of tension at that valve and cause you to maybe have trouble swallowing dense meat or maybe you choke a little bit more often when you're swallowing a sip of water or even on your own saliva. Not everyday swallowing problems, just once in a while you're thinking, why am I having trouble a little bit more often than I should? Sometimes a little bit more belching, not burping like a high school boy, but just a little bit of like letting some gas, like some air out once in a while or hiccups, a little bit more often hiccups. So those are some of the common symptoms of LPR. Not what you'd expect. Or one more, a dry throat. That feeling of dryness, no matter how much you drink, you just can't seem to get rid of that feeling of dryness. And that, again, you you have the irritation on the vocal cords, and you're drinking, it's going into your stomach and your esophagus. You won't relieve that dryness on the vocal cords themselves. So those are all the symptoms, a lot of symptoms. All that talk made me have a tickle in my throat, Andrea. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Okay, so that is a very interesting. I didn't really understand that they were more like aerosol particles. They're floating as you breathe in and out. Yes. Okay. That makes so much more sense why people cannot recognize that they have this problem. Correct. If you've ever experienced it, I experience it myself. So it's helpful for me. I can share with people what I have experienced. And there can be some very strange ones. Some people can just have jaw pain or palate pain. I had a lady a few weeks ago. Her only symptom was palate pain, terrible palate pain. But because I could see the other symptoms, but her main symptoms was this pain. I could see the other symptoms in her, but she was convinced that she was dying. She had a tumor in her palate. I mean, she was so uncomfortable with this palate pain. But when I told her it was reflux, I had to really convince her and go through all the other symptoms and show her how she had some of these other ones. But if we just could get on the medication, we could get it calmed down, which we did. She did well. Another lady had severe shortness of breath because her airway became very reactive from the irritation inside the throat. She had been to every pulmonologist for two years. Every time she tried to walk, panting, short of breath, terrible. But she had all the other symptoms, but the shortness of breath was so problematic for her and she was so focused on that that that's all she could see and that's all anybody else heard. But as soon as she walked in the door, I heard her voice. I knew she had reflux. I was like, I hear what you're saying, but let's look at all these other symptoms. And again, she's dramatically better. And we just had to get her on the right combination of medicine. And here's where I get a little where I have to work with the physicians because I'm not, I can't prescribe medicine. I can suggest some over-the-counter things that I think work well as long as I go through the physician to make sure that it doesn't interact with any of their other medicines. So you have to have really great physician colleagues to help you navigate those waters. So when they come to you, they often don't have medication prescribed for LPR? Right. Or if they do, they're not taking it properly. Or if they do, they have it prescribed, but they don't think they really have it. So they're not taking it or they're taking it every other day or they're taking it once in a while or they're. So I feel like I do. I spend a lot of time on medication education. What is a PPI medication? Proton pump inhibitor. How does that work? What is a H2 blocker? How does that work? What is a barrier medication, which is that's the medication that most doctors don't really know about. Those are the alginate therapies, like the reflux gourmet. How does that work? So we spend a lot of time talking about how all of those different medications work and how they might be appropriate for the patient. Okay. 
Very interesting that you're the one doing the some of the patient education. And now that you've said Reflux Gourmet, I know we have at least one person out there listening who's like, oh, what is Reflux Gourmet? <laughs> if they're like me, because when you told me about it, I was like, what? What are you talking about? So um, not, you know, can you just explain what that is? So that is a sodium alginate therapy, which actually the main ingredient is seaweed, which doesn't sound good, but it, this actually tastes really good. And it's funny how like laryngologists and speech pathologists have been prescribing this, I'd say for 10 years. There's another product that's a that's similar called Gaviscon Advance, similar ingredients. The Reflux Gourmet tastes a little bit better. It's a gel-like substance that you squeeze onto a teaspoon, you take a teaspoon of it. This particular one that we all like right now, because it's a fairly new flavor, it's been out for about, I guess, two years, is Vanilla Caramel. Tastes like vanilla some sundae syrup. They also have a chocolate mint flavor. It just sits as a barrier over the stomach content. So if you think about what I said about those aerosolized particles coming up through that valve that is dysfunctional at times, if you have a barrier sitting over top of that contents, it does not let those particles rise. So it is a very benign medicine. It's not systemic. It doesn't get absorbed into your stomach contents. It just sits over your stomach contents. It gets eliminated out of the body. So for people that are worried about proton pump inhibitors or other medications that can have more of a, an effect on your body systems, this is a very safe medicine. This medicine is safe in pregnancy, for example. So it's a great alternative. Now, you cannot buy it over the counter in a local pharmacy. It's available from Amazon. So if you just go to Amazon and type in Reflex Gourmet that is where you get it. And it can be taken as needed. If you just go out and have a few glasses of wine and you think, boy, when I lie down tonight, I'm going to feel that burning or I'm going to feel that tickle in my throat or I'm going to start coughing, that would be the time to take it. Or if you eat a spicy meal and you think that that might. So it works just as well for GERD as it does for LPR. Same because it's going to stop the, anything from coming up anywhere. But it works really well for LPR. Unfortunately, I feel like I have this, this role that has become thrust and many speech pathologists feel the same way. We, the role, and, and I would say that voice therapists feel the same way about reflux because similar to cough, maybe cough a little bit more because so much of the time I feel like with cough, it's such a mystery. What is causing this cough? And if we go through, you know, say a reflux symptom index, say we go through all those symptoms and they're answering yes to all those symptoms and they're not on enough reflux medicine, or maybe they're not taking it correctly, or the doctor just doesn't know what's causing their cough, or they're on a whole lot of inhaled medications. Then we sort of have to navigate the medical system to say, okay, well, now we've got to contact the pulmonologist, and we've got to contact the ENT, and we've, we kind of have to act as the case manager. And that's sort of how I feel about being a cough therapist, is you're sort of the case manager. You are the patient advocate to go to all of those physicians and get everybody on the same ship going in the same direction because everybody tends to want to pull in the, the opposite direction. And maybe that's why I'm so passionate about when I see a physician, if I get a referral from an ENT and I see a patient's going to a pulmonologist, I'm going to call that pulmonologist and say, hey, I'm on the case too because I want everybody to know everybody that's working on the case because I think it doesn't work if all of a sudden you you think one way and the doctor the pulmonologist goes in a completely different direction. You're like, what is going on? And that happens with GI doctors too. 
you you think one way for reflux and the next thing you know, they're changing the medication a week later and you're like, but we didn't even have a chance for it to work. Right, right. So you all have to be on the same team. So technically speaking, are you as the speech language pathologist diagnosing chronic cough or is the medical doctor? So the medical doctor diagnoses it and that diagnosis is in before they come to me. Epic is our medical record system. It is in their diagnosis before they come through my door. The other thing that I sometimes will ask the doctor to add to the diagnosis is irritable larynx syndrome, because I think that fits nicely with it sometimes when you're talking about, especially when we get into sensory neuropathic cough, which we're going to talk about next. And that's just sort of that whole umbrella of the throat being irritable and all of the factors that can go along with that. But Chronic cough is their symptom. If that's their symptom, then that diagnosis is is already given. Okay. And can you talk a little bit more about the chronic cough index? So that's a, a nice scale. It's actually a very easy scale that was done by Dr. Kaufman. It's a yes-no scale, which patients love. They love yes-no. They don't have to give it a rating. And what it allows you to do, it's the first thing that I give anybody that walks in the door. So that's my very first thing after I they tell me their story and we kind of get the case history. It's usually the very first thing I do to kind of narrow down, are we going in a reflux direction or are we going in a more sensory neuropathic cough direction, which is more an irritated nerve? Sometimes we have both. Sometimes we're going to be look. it's going to be both things and then they're going to score high on both indexes. But essentially what it is, is a series of questions that is, are looking at, does the cough seem to be triggered by reflux related things like laying down at nighttime or after meals? Is that when the cough is occurring? Or does it seem to be triggered more by things that irritate the nerve like talking, laughing, singing, strong odors? So if your cough was reflux related, you would not expect necessarily that a strong odor or that talking, laughing, and singing would be your primary triggers. You would expect more that it would be related to phlegm in your throat or after you eat or laying down. Those are the more typical reflux-type triggers for cough. For sensory neuropathic cough, you're going to have talking, laughing, singing, strong odors, and coughing with strong odors, not sneezing. I know often you see sneezing. Paroxysmal coughing. And it's not just a little like... Like, is there a definition of sensory neuropathic cough? So there are a number of definitions. So it essentially means that that there is a irritated nerve in the throat where the threshold for cough has been lowered. And there are some number of triggers that then will cause the cough to occur. So that's sort of the simple definition. So basically, we think that it is a neural pathway, a sensory neural pathway that has where the threshold for cough has been lowered from normal, where you have a cough triggered by a series of elements in the world, right? Whether it be, it can also be exercise, it can also be stress, it can also be reflux, right? So LPR can play a role in a sensory neuropathic cough. Sometimes we think that constant bathing of severe LPR can be one of the triggers for a sensory neuropathic cough. So severe reflux could actually cause the cough to become sensory neuropathic. And then all of a sudden you get all of those factors where you're not just coughing with reflux related issues. You're actually coughing when you have a candle that's scented or when you exercise or when it's humid out or so then you've kind of 
jumped the shark. You've gone into that next level of cough. Other causes, viral illnesses, exposure to strong, like a chemical, like mold, for example. I have several patients who've been in a moldy environment and that has caused their cough, their sensory neuropathic cough. Fire and surgical injury has caused that, a similar issue. So what is the speech-language pathologist's role in treating sensory neuropathy? So we have actually, I think, a much more a clear-cut role with this one because certainly we there is a lot of behavioral therapy to be done with sensory neuropathic cough. There are neuromodulator medications that can be provided, and if you have a really good laryngologist or ENT doctor, they can kind of handle that. I do provide a lot of advice to the physicians I work with because they don't have a good sense necessarily, especially pulmonologists as to what is that pathway. So I have kind of a cough, I created a cough flow sheet, sort of when do we need to give medication in terms of what is the severity of that cough? Is it a sensory neuropathic cough? And here are what are some choices of medications? And that is as comfortable as I am getting involved in those kinds of medications. You know, those are not over the counter medications. We're talking about pretty serious medications like tramadol, amitriptyline, gabapentin, like nerve medicines. So I will have discussions, but that is as much as I'm comfortable doing with that. So beyond the medication piece, our role is behavioral. And that's what you will see if you were to Google sensory neuropathic cough. This is what patients find. They find there is a role in speech pathology doing behavioral treatment, learning how to relax the body and open the throat. And so what we're doing is, is teaching breathing techniques and relaxation techniques. And by that, I mean muscle relaxation techniques in order to kind of teach the body and train that nerve to be less reactive. And there are certainly a lot of patients that are not able to take any of those medications for a variety of reasons. Either they're allergic to them or they don't tolerate them. And so we only have behavioral means to treat those folks. And so then we really do have to double down on all of the behavioral treatment that we can provide. So it can consist of anything from manual therapy for reducing tension in the neck, the chest, the diaphragm, as well as a whole slew of behavioral breathing techniques, a lot of vocal hygiene, including phlegm management, as well as things like nebulizing saline, and then sometimes some voice work. And the reason why the voice work is there is if you've been coughing a long time, you can have a very raspy, backward, tone-focused voice, and then that can trigger the cough. So if you're talking back in your throat, and now you're squeezing and compressing, and you have muscle tension, dysphonia, now you've got that struggle with the pressed voice, and you can be causing the cough to happen just from the way you're talking. Okay. So it's all related and one thing leads to the next. Can you tell us about the role of nasal breathing and how that affects sensory neuropathic cough? So I'm a passionate fan of nasal breathing. And I'm going to take the quote that breathing through your mouth is about as effective as eating through your nose. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) So I, I really do believe that in the last probably seven or eight years. And I, I will admit, I this has been quite a journey for me as well. I was back in when I first went to those initial conferences, I learned the typical rescue technique, sniff blow, purse lip breathing, you know, breathe in, all of those techniques that I'm sure 
people may or may not have heard. Anyone that's been interested in breath work, you will have heard of those things. And I have switched almost exclusively to nasal breathing. And so that comes a little bit from Hadass Golan's work on buteco breathing. So I took her course probably 10 years ago, but also just reading a lot of other things and, and participating in some other courses. I really believe that nasal breathing is the way that we can rehab an irritated nerve. And I think that when you do nasal breathing as a rule, if you have irritated throat, it really impacts the whole system. So just from research, what does nasal breathing do that can improve breathing? The first thing it does is that it activates the parasympathetic nervous system instead of the sympathetic nervous system. So sympathetic is fight or flight. So if we are in the middle of a coughing spell, which is very uncomfortable, and for these people, for people that have chronic cough, coughing is exhausting. They're so frustrated with it. If you look, we have another scale that I think I've given handouts, the cough severity index, and it talks a lot about the impact that the coughing is having on their lives. And it's always heartbreaking for me to do that scale and see how much they're avoiding. You know, they're avoiding going out to social places. They're embarrassed by people asking them what's wrong with your, your why are you coughing? Are you sick? And of course, the pandemic has done nothing but make that a thousand times worse. So I was a cough therapist before COVID, and it was a problem then. Things were even changing then before COVID. People, there was a certain germophobia where nobody really wanted to get sick, and there was a an aversion to anybody coughing anywhere. And then, of course, you can only imagine people don't go out. They don't go to church. They don't go to the grocery store. If they're if they have a chronic cough, they don't go anywhere. The children that I work with, because I do work with a good number of school age kids that have a variant of this, none of them are allowed to go to school. They are all homeschooled, homebound because they are such a disruption in the classroom. And that's heartbreaking. Oh, that's absolutely heartbreaking. They can usually be fixed really rapidly. Honestly, we have great success with school age kids, but that's bad to be asked to leave your classroom. That is extremely socially isolating. You don't think kids remember that? And was that the case with children before the pandemic? Yes. Oh, yeah. Because this is just, I mean, it's a very, kids that have this type of cough, it's very barking, almost seal-like, and it's just super disruptive. And anytime you do anything different, right, you're, because it's usually kind of older elementary, middle school age, that seems to be the age that it hits. Yeah, bad age for you to have anything that singles you out as being different. So parasympathetic system, so it, it activates that calm response, which is parasympathetic instead of fight or flight. That's the first one. The other thing it does is when you're breathing through your nose with your mouth closed, it slows your breathing down just a little bit. And we know that oral breathing, especially during something like a cough, we tend to take these really big breaths and we get a imbalance between the carbon dioxide and oxygen. And so this slows the breathing down. It kind of gets us more imbalanced so that we aren't in danger of hyperventilating. We're going to keep that balance between O2 and CO2. So just, just the act of nasal breathing just slows you down just a little bit. Not enough to create air hunger, but just enough to kind of keep everything slowed down. And the last one is that it gives you, it maintains your moisture because you're inhaling through the nasal cavity on the way in and then also on the way out. So you're returning moisture as you exhale. So lots of benefits of nasal breathing. 
That's very interesting about the parasympathetic nervous system. It really is amazing to think that just by changing where you're breathing, that that can have such an effect. Right. And so then the other reason why we use nasal breathing is focusing the way that we nasal breathe is very particular. So it's not just enough to say breathe through your nose. What we say is take the tip of your tongue, place it behind your top teeth, and then immediately I will nasal breathe. So then you're going to keep your teeth open and your lips closed. So a very relaxed jaw posture. And then you're going to do comfortable nasal breaths in and out through your nose. And you will only be using your abdominal muscles. So with that target of your tongue set sitting right there on your alveolar ridge, it's just an incredibly comfortable posture. And so then you can focus on that air moving in and out your nostrils. You really feel nothing in your throat. So that direction of that air flow in your nostril, it just sort of allows the air to move easily and the throat is very quiet. The chest is very quiet. So you're not moving anything in the area where irritation is. So that's sort of the first thing you can do to kind of keep the area that is irritated calm. So that's the beginning of the, to calming down the thoracic area, the clavicular area, moving the energy to the diaphragm and the abdominal muscles and also keeping the focus of energy up in your nose. So that's the, that's the beginning of how do we start to change things. And when I'm instructing my patients, I don't say five minutes a day or five times every hour. I say, I just want you to nasal breathe every single time you think about it. Every time you feel a tickle in your throat, every, like whatever triggers you to think about breathing nasally, put your tongue in that place and take a couple breaths. And before long, you'll be doing it all day long. And it doesn't have to be every breath. I just want them to frequently breathe through their nose throughout the day. Because the more that they do that, the more they're creating that open throat, easy posture, and retraining the forward breathing and a more relaxed throat. Mm -hmm. Now, most of the patients who come in, do you notice right away that they're mouth breathers with that open mouth posture? Mouth breathers are just very tight in their thoracic area. So not just nasal breathing with the tongue on the resting spot behind the alveolar ridge, but really opening up and relaxing and avoiding the clavicular thoracic breathing. And that's where we have to get into the manual therapy piece of things. Well, that is a good segue. Tell us about some manual therapy techniques. I have to give Walt Fritz all the credit because I took a course with Walt Fritz. Gosh, it was one of his first courses that he ever did, I think, for swallowing. So it was maybe 12 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago. I just didn't know what to do. I think I wanted to be a hands-on therapist, was, wasn't sure how to do it. And he gave me the tools to do it and it has dramatically changed my practice. And so I use his techniques for manual therapy, which is a lot of jaw and tongue and laryngeal and sternocleidomastoid release. Most of what I use for cough patients is SCM some tongue and some jaw, but a lot of SCM and upper chest and shoulder release. A lot of that stuff is just having them do some of their own stretching and just kind of giving them some support. When you change someone's breathing, they feel a little bit uncomfortable, like just like anybody, right? Anytime we change anything, there's a discomfort level. I have them in a reclined position or supine. So depending on how we're doing. I try to start reclined because most people are a little bit more comfortable reclined than fully. They feel more vulnerable, fully supine. So we start reclined and I will always give them some, I ask permission, of course, but I give them some 
support somewhere, whether it be under their shoulder blades or under their lumbar back or on their chest or on their diaphragm. I'm going to give them some like fairly firm, almost like a weight, like, okay, here I am. And I, I want you to feel that I'm here almost as a steadying force. So that's a form of manual therapy, but a little bit less of the movement piece. And so that's how we start the breathing. Then I'll cue them into where their tongue should be and we start the breathing. And almost invariably, there's a lot of kind of discoordinated movement as they first start that breathing and they sink down into their abdominal area. Usually their breathing is very rapid, extremely rapid. We have to slow it down. And so there's things, you know, we kind of work through all of that. And I do all of that first, typically. And once they kind of get to a point where there's a little bit of homeostasis, where they could at least hold an easy breathing pattern, then I will do some of the myofascial release or manual therapy of the neck, usually the base of the tongue, and then a little bit of the upper chest. And then I also do, I have found in the last couple of years, I really have to do the diaphragm. And we just did a little bit on the diaphragm. I had to contact Walt and get some extra help on the diaphragm because their diaphragms, it's especially the teenagers that I work with, they're so tight. I think there's been this whole thing that we aren't allowed to move our, we have to hold our bellies in all the time. Don't let your belly out. Don't let it out ever. I am so sad that we have that in our culture, but they are so tight. There's some work that has to be done often where we just won't allow that belly to come out or relax or do anything. And it's like a rock. So you actually manually manipulate the diaphragm? I do very gently. And then I teach them to do it. So it's, I do just a little bit. And then I say, this is the area we want to feel loose. Does it feel tight? And then I get their hands there. And then fairly quickly, I have them doing it themselves because they can feel the tightness almost always. They'll say, oh yeah, it feels so tight there. I do a fair amount of yoga poses and twists and stretches as well, trying to engage that area. So we talked a little bit or a lot at the beginning about your patient's journey before they get to you. So they have at least seen their primary care and probably been referred to one to four other specialists. It's been a long time that they've been dealing with this and they're frustrated. And they, since they haven't had success with these other medical specialists, they sometimes don't have a lot of trust in another medical specialist. So how do you gain their confidence after you meet them? I'm very passionate about this. In fact, I sort of introduce myself often as the cough girl or the cough lady to them in a bit of a joke. But part of it is just to let them know that this is truly what I specialize in and that I'm, I've worked with lots of cough patients and I, that I promise I'm going to give it my all to try to find the solution. And I kind of do say that. I preface a lot of our sessions by saying, I know you're here to see me for cough and I know you've been to a lot of places and you know, cough is what I do. It's what I love to do. And we're just going to work through it. I promise I'm not going to give up until we, you know, get to the bottom of it. But that's still sort of empty words. So what I really try to do is give them a chance to tell their story. And that's really what they want to do. And there's a couple things I do at the beginning. I sort of let them know that I've read their chart. So that's the first thing I do, because I think it infuriates patients when they don't, when you say, so tell me why you're here. So what I say is, I know that you're being sent to me by Dr. X, and I see that you've had quite a journey, and I, I see you've been to see this person and that person, and you're on a lot of medication, and tell me how it all happened, or tell me the story. That's what I usually say, is just tell me the story. 
And I feel like that gives them permission to share as much or as little as they want to about their frustration and, you know, all that it took to get them here. And most of the time, I would say 80% of the time, they want to tell the story of their frustration. That's such a good point that you make about reading the chart and letting them tell their story. So if you've ever had any kind of medical issue and been to a few different specialists, telling that story gets a little difficult, especially if you're telling the same story a couple times within the same appointment. So you have your intake person, and then you have your next person, and then you have your doctor, and you've said the same story three times. So anyway, I just love your point. But but then you do want to tell your story, but you want to be listened to, and you want to know that they've cared enough to read the chart. So thank you for making that point, because it's a very good point. Yeah, I want them to know that I've read everything, but I want to hear their perspective. So I always kind of try to show that I've read the breadth of it, and I know what medicines are on, and I know why they're there, but tell me what you think, what's been going on and what, you know, and usually they just want to sort of say, you're my last resort, or I don't know what's going on, or I'm so tired of medicine, or I don't think that anyone's got it yet, or I didn't like the last person I went to or whatever, they just want to vent. And so I just think it's important to let them vent. And sometimes they have some really traumatic stories. I mean, where they really weren't listened to. And there are bad doctors everywhere, unfortunately. And the worst thing you can be told is it's in your head. There's nothing more we can do for you. This is a little bit of a soapbox, but women are told that a lot more than men. Like I look at some of the women and the stories, the journeys that they've been through, and how they're so often told, well, you know, we, the, we, there's nothing more we can do for you. We've done everything. It must be in your head. That is told more often to my women chronic cough patients than to my men chronic cough patients would have cardiology workups, they would have CT scans, they would have all kinds of things. And it it just bothers me, bothers me that there's that much diversity in care. It is interesting and unfortunate. But here comes Andrea and she turns everything around. You acknowledge what they're there for. You tell them that you've read their chart and give them a summary and then let them tell their story. And then what happens from there? Then I think the next most important thing is that really what I provide is the education piece. And then, so I spend a lot of time on education, not just that session, but really throughout everything I do. And that's, and I'm sure that a lot of us speech pathologists do the same thing. You know, that's kind of the hallmark of what we do. We educate as we treat. So there's always a reason why we're doing something. And I think our patients benefit from knowing what the reason is. So it's very rare that I would ever do any kind of an activity with any patient without telling them the reason for it and not necessarily all the research behind it, but at least like little pieces of this is why we're doing it and here's why it makes sense. And I think patients really appreciate that. And then I do acknowledge how complicated cough is and that we may not get it right on the first go around. We're going to try this. Here's plan A. And here's what we, you know, we're going to work with the doctor and we're going to try this. And if this doesn't work, we have plan B and then we have plan C. And, you know, I think I told you that we have this cough flow sheet and I often will show the flow sheet and say, here's kind of the way we go. And if this doesn't work, then here. And if that doesn't work, then here. And These are the pathways that we take people through. And by the end, we will be successful, but it may not happen tomorrow. So just be patient and I won't give up on you if you don't give up on me. And I do say that pretty often. So, and I feel like patients really remember that because then they seem willing to come back and say, well, don't give up on me. And I said, I'm not going to give up on you. And 
And I feel like then they're, they kind of get that it's a partnership that we're on the road together and that we may have to try a number of different things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So rapport is always important, but it seems like in this case, it's especially important. Yeah. I think that's very true for both. I think because we have patients that are, are choosing to come, it's not like a stroke patient who doesn't really have a choice, right? They require treatment and there isn't an option. With this, this is very much, there's a little bit of a sales pitch going on, right? You are, you are choosing, you are very capable of walking out the door and never coming back. So there's a bit of a, a, you have to convince these patients that you have something that is worthwhile coming back for. Often leaving work, you know, we're all busy. These are patients that often have many other things going on in their lives and they have to schedule around all of that. Well, one of the great things you mentioned about this type of therapy is that you're able to get a lot done in a short time. So these are patients who have been struggling this for years, um, many years. And then typically how many treatment sessions do they come in for? Typically four treatment sessions is is the average. Um, Occasionally we have to go to six and that's if we have significant voice issues to work on, but the average is four. And that's with the cough really pretty much resolved Unless there's significant medication issues that we have to work with the physician on, sometimes we see the patient in conjunction with the physician in that case towards the last few, but we really wouldn't have any more treatment to go through. It would be four sessions to do all the treatment stuff. Okay. So sometimes you see them again, but you don't necessarily schedule a follow-up, just more like a follow-up as needed. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, that really the only time would be like, for example, sometimes we have the patients on some of these neuromodulator medications and the doctors want some input as they're coming off of those medications, just to remind them, don't forget to implement your breathing strategies. And it's more just that we'll see them at the same time as the physician just in their, in their visit, just for five minutes, just to say, remember your breathing, do you need any help with that? And that's it. Great. Can the reflux gourmet OTC meds be taken long-term or only symptom-based? Could this be a substitute for PPI? Yeah, so they can be taken long-term, and often that's the way that we get people off of PPI medications. So it can definitely be a substitute. Be careful when you're weaning off of a PPI, though, that you wean off slowly. So the problem with a proton pump inhibitor is that it blocks the acid from being produced, and so then when you come off of it, the acid kind of has a party and will produce more acid. So we usually recommend weaning off of it kind of slowly. So if you're on 40 milligrams, go to 20 for a week or two, or if you're on 20 do every other day for at least a week, 10 days uh, before you come off. And then I would take the reflux gourmet after every meal and at bedtime for a while until you kind of let things calm down. And then you can go to taking it as needed. Okay. What is Walt's last name who teaches manual therapy? Okay. Walt Fritz, F-R-I-T-Z. And you can look him up. WaltFritzPT.com is his website address. And he is phenomenal. I cannot recommend him enough for his manual therapy. He does manual therapy all over the world. He is in Hawaii right now. He just posted a picture on his Facebook page in Hawaii looking very native. He teaches all over the, all over the U.S. and he does, it's, I think his, it's called manual therapy for voice and swallowing is his, the title of his course. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Can you tell us about some of your case studies that you brought with you tonight? Here's a quick one on post, a post-viral cough one. And of course, of course, the virus I picked had to be COVID. So this is DVC. He's a 42-year-old police sergeant. 
he contracted COVID in October 2022 prior to vaccination. He was not hospitalized, but he had prolonged illness. He had fever, congestion, and fatigue. He was off work for four weeks due to symptoms. And when the symptoms began to resolve, his severe cough persisted. So he really was pretty much symptom-free other than a, some shortness of breath. And then this just the coughing, like paroxysmal coughing. His cough was triggered primarily by speaking, deep breathing, and exertion. He had significant speaking demand at work, and so his cough was severely impacting his ability to work. He was back at work, but he was kind of on the desk. He couldn't really go out and work as a police sergeant. So his treatment by his pulmonologist had already included several rounds of steroids, Tessalon pearls. If you're familiar with those, they're little tiny kind of cough suppressants that you take as an oral medication, and then also codeine cough syrup, but none of those were effective for him at all. He was still coughing. I mean, he would come in the room and start talking and like just cough the entire session the whole time he was in there. So we evaluated him. He had been on reflux medication. Previously, reflux was a significant issue for him, but he lost 35 pounds with COVID. So reflux was much improved. And his taste was also impaired with COVID. And so he wasn't eating very much either. So we really were not concerned about reflux. His reflux symptoms was way down. Reflux symptom index was way down. So we were actually thought that he had a post-viral cough. So it looked like sensory neuropathic cough, all of those talking, laughing, exertion triggers. But it was since it was post-viral, and we didn't talk so much about this, whenever we have something that occurs immediately after a virus we still do all of the breathing techniques, but instead of putting them on a strong neuropathic medicine, we give a type of inhaler, which is what his pulmonologist and I discussed. So we gave him that, she gave him that inhaled atrovent after we discussed it. And then we did all kinds of behavioral control. Like we really, he was going to do any, he would have stood in his head if I told him to stand in his head because he so wanted to be able to get out of the office. So we did nasal breathing increased hydration and saline nebulization. He had 80% improvement in four weeks and he had hundred percent resolution of his cough in eight weeks. He did great. Wow. He was thrilled, thrilled. So he did really well. Now he may have gotten better on his own anyway. Right. But he just was, he was so thrilled because he had something he could do behaviorally to help control it because all he did, he would talk, he would coffee. He just sat, he said, I have to sit at my desk and not talk. So now he was able to do the, we didn't talk about saline nebulization. That is, we just use a little handheld nebulizer and we put saline bullets in it. And that is really healing to the throat for cough. We find that really beneficial. And so okay. he was one that benefited from that. And is that a prescription or over the counter? Over the counter. You And again, Amazon, my favorite recommendation for everything, sadly, but it works. They're about $30 on Amazon. You just type in handheld nebulizer. We use hypotonic saline for it. I think I've talked enough about reflux, so I'm going to jump over and do my last one, a sensory neuropathic cough. So this is a 50-year-old female chemist. Her initials are PS. She was working in a chemical lab, and she had prolonged exposure to airborne chemicals with masked protection for many years. She'd been working in that lab for more than 15 years. But then she had an accidental exposure to a spill that was unmasked, and it was a very strong acid. And she had immediate symptoms of cough, shortness of breath, and voice loss. She was taken to the emergency room, treated with oxygen, steroids, and several rounds of steroids. 
She had some improvement over the next several weeks, but never had normal breathing or voice. And then she began to note that she had other breathing and cough triggers, especially household odors and chemicals, and she was unable to return to work when she tried because the atmosphere at work with the chemicals was so toxic to her, she would immediately have spasms in her breathing, which is like our paradoxical vocal fold motion and complete voice loss and severe coughing. So then she began to be hypersensitive to all odors, detergent, deodorant, everything in the environment. She had to kind of cleanse her house of everything. She basically was living in a bubble for a while. She had a workman's compensation claim. She went to a speech pathologist that did not have upper airway experience, and she had 10 sessions of voice therapy but didn't make any progress. Then she was referred to another speech pathologist in our practice, and then who then sent her to me, and she was not going to come for any more therapy. She was done. She was frustrated. She was done with it. So we convinced her to come and try some more. And finally, we were able to get her breathing in much better order, working on nasal breathing and calm, relaxed breathing. We were able to get her to the point where she could at least go out in public and be in control of her breathing and be more in her house with normal things and have her family come back in and still had some serious voice problems. Then we got her voice back a little bit. We put her with the laryngologist that is in our practice on amitriptyline, which is a great medicine for kind of relaxing the vocal cords. That began to help her breathing as well. And then she ended up having Botox. She's still getting Botox today every three months to try to keep her vocal cords relaxed enough that we can get her normal voice. So she's been a really interesting case. I still see her once a month and we do myofascial release and voicing and breathing and she just needs ongoing support. She's very emotional, as you can imagine. Yes. So when she first came to you, how many months post-incident was she? I think it was about three months by the time, because it just, there was a long kind of, she, you know, it took a while to get it with the other speech pathologists who kind of kept her too long, because she, but she didn't really know what she was doing. And then finally she got referred to our practice. And then she went to our singing voice therapist who was like, Andrea. <laughs> yeah. So it was just one of those long and winding roads for her. So. Wow. Well, it sounds like she's made a lot of improvement and hopefully she will continue to do so. She's getting there. She's definitely feels a lot. I remember the one thing she wanted was to be able to speak to her son who was deployed and he was coming back from overseas in August. And so we had to get her real voice and we, we did it. We managed to get her speaking after the first Botox injection so she could talk to her son. So that was a big deal. Oh, that's great. That's great. And do you have, before we go, any advice that you would like to give to anyone who would like to specialize or learn more about this area? I think that look for a conference or I'm happy to mentor anybody that's interested. If you reach out, I'm happy to help you kind of look for places and resources. It's not rocket science. It's not difficult to do. It's really worthwhile. It's a very satisfying condition to treat. Your patients are so thrilled with anything that you can offer them. And if you don't, if you're someone who doesn't want to spend three months or six months working with somebody, but prefers kind of those shorter relationships or, you know, kind of work with someone and improve things and get them on their way and, and meet other new people, it's very satisfying. So I think for me in this stage of my career, I'm really enjoying it. Well, great, great. And it sounds like you're helping so many people. So Thank you for sharing your expertise with us. We really appreciate it. It's a fascinating topic and 
it's exciting to be part of a team where you can really make such a difference in people's lives. So thank you for being here. And thank you everyone else for, I know we went a little bit over tonight, but I wanted to get into those case studies because I think they're so interesting. So thank you. Have a great night. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.